The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 16 Study Guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC16. This is Secret Church 16, Episode 5. Share the gospel with Hindus. So, and, and, and just so you know, these last two rounds here, uh, feel free, you will not offend me or anybody else if you kind of get up and just kind of start pacing some to kind of keep yourself awake, keep the blood flowing. Uh, but Hinduism, so recap from earlier, over 915 million people, 51 countries, 1,200 plus people groups, uh, 90% of them not reached with the gospel. So debunking myths. Many people think all Indians are Hindu, which is not true. So yes, the majority of Hindus do live in India. Uh, we talked earlier about how India is on the way, though, to becoming one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. And many Indians are Sikh, Jain, or followers of Christ, as we've talked about tonight. So second myth, Hindus pray to cows. Uh, the cow is revered in Hinduism as a source of food, symbol of life. As a result, Hindus uh, would not kill cows or eat beef, though Hindus would rely on cows for dairy products, other uses. But that doesn't mean Hindus pray to cows. Some would say Hindus don't worship cows as much as they deeply respect them, hold them in high esteem. Third myth, people often think that Hinduism is a religion with a certain founder, clear authority, common theme, common creed, consistent beliefs. The reality is we're about to see Hinduism is much more complicated than that. Various Hindus believe a variety of different things. So who are Hindus? Well, interestingly, Hindu was a catch-all term used by the British who originally referred to a geographic area of the Indian subcontinent where people practiced innumerable diverse and seemingly contradictory religions. Which simply goes to show Hinduism is actually a complex set of religions. It's pantheism mixed with polytheism. So pantheism would be the belief that God is everything and everything is God. So pan meaning all, theism meaning God. Polytheism, on the other hand, is the belief that many different gods exist. It's commonly said that there are over 330 million gods worshipped in Hinduism. And many of these gods have their own set of, Hindu, of beliefs and practices. So there's a mixture of everything is God alongside all kinds of gods in a way that's difficult to define and understand, particularly from a more Western mindset. So hence the contradictions that some people perceive. In addition, in addition Hinduism can, contains sacred writings with different gurus. So there's specific sacred writings or scriptures, so to speak. The Vedas are inspired sacred writings for Hindu belief. So different people across the Indian subcontinent worshiping different gods through different rituals. Hindu spiritual leaders started developing common beliefs practices wrote them down in Vedas. Those writings composed from about 1800 to 500 BC, so we're moving forward in history here, contain hymns, prayers, mythic stories, mantras, you got praise songs, guides for the priests, instructions on how to worship and meditate, uh, and then mythical stories and philosophical teachings. Gandhi said truth is the sovereign principle. And the Bhagavad Gita, so this is the most popular writing, is the book Par Excellence for the Knowledge of Truth. So mythical stories, philosophical teachings. So you have these teachings, but then based on those teachings, different gurus help lead and guide in Hindu practice in different ways. They interpret, emphasize, apply different things from the Vedas, leading to diversity of practices according to how that particular guru leads and guides those around him. Then one other complexity to mention in Hinduism, you have a blend of communal culture with individualistic belief. So community is very important and Hindu culture is infused with a historical system of castes. So basically a class of society that you're born into from which you never leave or it's very hard to leave. The social stratification is officially less formal than it has been in the past. The Indian constitution actually now forbids discrimination on the basis of caste, but it's still pretty firmly practically fixed in 
Hindu culture. So starting from the top, you have Brahmins, which would include priests, genealogists, astrologers, traditional physicians, and then you work all the way down. The lowest caste, actually technically no caste, caste-less, are the Dalits, untouchables. Uh, Dalits would have the dirtiest, filthiest of jobs, if any jobs at all, would be marked by extreme poverty, lacking access to clean water, healthcare, education, on a whole, lacking dignity, functionally perceived as subhuman. So this communal culture is strong in Hinduism, yet at the same time, worship is more individualistic than it is congregational. So you have all kinds of different individual people worshiping individual gods with different beliefs and practices associated with different gods. So you have individual shrines, idols, individual homes. So just a glimpse into how Hindu, referred to in this part of the Indian subcontinent, innumerable, diverse, seemingly contradictory practices. In essence, Hindus practice their religion however they want, whenever they want, to whatever degree they want. So that makes Hinduism very difficult to define. So for a few minutes, we've got to take off our predominantly Western eyeglasses, try to imagine a way of looking at reality that's very different from the way we look at things. If we're patient, we persevere here though, our goal is to see the world as more than a billion people see it. So in spite of these complexities, there are certain beliefs that unite most Hindus. So we're going to camp out on those, step into their shoes, see the world through the lens of two foundational beliefs in Hinduism that, that kind of from these two foundations, these seemingly diverse contradictory practices spring. So what do Hindus believe? At the core, Hinduism comes down to two common beliefs. One is samsara or reincarnation. And the other is moksha, or salvation. So reincarnation, salvation. We'll take them one at a time. First, samsara, reincarnation. In Hindu belief, samsara, reincarnation, is the process through which every atman, which is an uncreated eternal soul, so every soul must pass through this process until one reaches moksha, or salvation. So a process through which a soul must pass to reach salvation. So in Hindu thought, think of a cyclical, nonlinear view of physical life. So cyclical. So linear thought, picture a line, we're born, we live, we die. Cyclical, think about, think about life, we're born, we live, we die, and we're born again, we live again, we die again, and on and on and on. Hindus would have a cyclical view of life in which every Atman or soul is trapped in an endless cycle of living and dying and living again in a universe that is cyclical. So the universe is perpetually beginning, ending, and beginning, and again, beginning again. And progression in the cycle is based on past cycles. So past lives determine present lives. Then present lives determine future lives, which leads to the Hindu notion of karma. Basically, that what goes around comes around. Your next life will be lived as a reflection of your present life. Your present life is a reflection of your past life. So think about that, especially in a caste system. Think about the untouchables. If somebody is living in a low caste, subhuman state right now, what does that say about their past life? They're experiencing what, does it, what goes around comes around. And those who are more well off are experiencing the fruit of their past lives, which apparently were more noble. So this cycle continues, not just through a few lives, but Atmans endure suffering through hundreds, thousands, even millions of physical lives before reaching moksha, salvation. So moksha is liberation from samsara. So liberation from this cycle of reincarnation. So Remember, diagnosing the human problem. The human problem here is that the Atman, the soul, is trapped in physical samsara, reincarnation, and in need of escape. We want to get out of the cycle. That's moksha. So how do you get there? Three paths to moksha, each of which approach this problem in different ways from different vantage points. So one is dharma, the way of works. So in dharma, Hindu thinking, the human problem is basically moral. We need to change our behavior. 
So Dharma then is the religious, social, moral duty that we need to observe. Think code of conduct. We need to live by. Now that code or that moral duty varies from person to person and caste to caste. You do what's right for your life and your family and your caste. And as you do, your good Dharma, your good works, create good karma. Good works in the present lead to good results in the future. What goes around comes around. So one path to moksha is dharma, the way of works. But then you also have janana, the way of knowledge. And in janana, the human problem is basically intellectual, not as much moral. So there's one ultimate spiritual reality that exists, Brahman. Now when you hear Brahman, think ultimate spiritual force and reality over everything. Similar to the concept of a supreme God, which is why some would say that Hinduism is not ultimately polytheistic because there's a singular spiritual reality above all. But the difference between a supreme God and Brahman is that Brahman is not personal but impersonal. So this is, this is not going to do it justice, but in a sense, think the force in Star Wars. So Brahman, ultimate spiritual reality, it's the essence of the real. And our problem is ignorance of that which is real. Every Atman, every soul is ignorant of Brahman and in need of knowledge that everything, including our souls, is Brahman. Brahman is the only thing that's real. So we need to see ourselves and the world around us as the illusions they are and Brahman as the reality it is. So how do we get there? Jnana involves continual meditation, introspection until we realize our soul is one with Brahman. We meditate on the nature of reality until we finally realize everything is Brahman, even our individual selves. So Jnana is ultimately a renunciation of self and reunion with Brahman and ultimate reality. That's Jnana. And then there's Bhakti, the way of devotion. Bhakti, the way of devotion, views the human problem as basically spiritual. So many different gods exist, each one of whom may be manifestations of Brahman, the ultimate spiritual reality. Now among all those gods, millions, even hundreds of millions of them, there are three major gods. One is Brahma, the creator of life. A second is Vishnu, the sustainer and protector of life. And Vishnu has many names, has appeared as many avatars. Those are incarnations, including Krishna and Rama. So Vishnu is believed by many to have come to the earth at least nine times. One of those in Krishna, who is the hero of the Bhagavad Gita. And then the third major god is Shiva, the destroyer of life. And it's interesting. You look at these three major gods and you can see the cycle of reincarnation in them. Creation of life, protection of life, destruction of life, start the process over. But no matter how many gods one believes in, or whoever those gods are, bhakti emphasizes love and devotion to a god or gods with a view toward moksha. So if you express love, devotion, worship to a certain god or gods, then you can experience salvation. This, again, is why Krishna would be so prominent in Hindu thought, because Krishna is believed to have been an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu, and if you're devoted, devoted to Krishna, serve him well, then you can be released from samsara. And when you put this path up to the other paths, like endless meditation and jnana, you begin to realize why bhakti is actually the most popular of all paths to moksha among Hindus. It's the most popular. Now, along those paths, there are important practices for Hindus to participate in, like yoga, a path of mental, physical, spiritual discipline that leads to moksha. So yoga is not just a popular fad trend in physical fitness. Yoga is a Hindu practice which uses the body to clear the mind and connect to Brahman on the path to moksha. We don't have a lot of time to camp out here on what might be controversial, but suffice to say the physical activity of yoga, yoga is designed for spiritual reasons and those spiritual reasons are antithetical to the gospel. 
Self-identified Christians who practice yoga say, well, isn't it good to empty my mind and focus on the spiritual? Well, if you're Hindu, but not if you're a follower of Christ. The Bible never beckons followers of Christ to empty our minds. Instead, we fill our minds with God's word, the truth of the gospel revealed in scripture. And that is opposite the purpose of yoga. So then you have mantras, which are prayers, chants, utterances, which aid in meditation and worship. You have ritual bathing that some Hindus do daily before their devotions. Millions of Hindus do periodically in rivers with cleansing power. I mentioned at the very beginning, Kumbh Mela, festival that's going on right now. Millions of people flocking to the Ganges River to bathe in it, to be made spiritually clean through it. Then you have numerous Hindu festivals aimed at celebrating different events in history, expressing devotion to God, just all kinds of different festivals, uh, honoring this God, remembering this event in history. So how in the world do we share the gospel with Hindus? Now that we're clear on Hinduism and it all, everybody's just like, oh yeah, I totally get all that. <laughs> so here's some exhortations. One, much like we talk about with animism, listen carefully, listen carefully. So seek to understand as much as possible where your Hindu friends or neighbors or acquaintances are coming from. Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So don't be a fool. Listen carefully and look expectantly. I always think about India, specifically Hindus in India, when I read John 5. Jesus answered, my father is working, I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only to break the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. But Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The reason I think that is because my first time ever to India, I was encouraged with that text to, we were going out and we were going to be in a, a park with tons of people, uh, mostly Hindu uh, area of, of uh, India, and we're going to be in a park with tons of people and the people who were encouraging us as we went out just said, we believe God is working in different people's hearts out here. So your goal is not to go out and try to start something. Your goal is to go out and join in what God is doing. He's drawing people to himself. So start conversations, get to the gospel, and see who's open to the gospel. And so that's what I mean by look expectantly. We have the spirit. We are working with God and what he's doing in neighbors and nations around us. So look expectantly for opportunities to share the gospel with Hindus, believing that God is working to draw people to himself. Listen carefully, look expectantly. Third, pray boldly. Pray boldly. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18, surrounded by people who were worshiping all kinds of false gods, namely the Canaanite rain god Baal. He stood up, prayed for God to show his glory among his people, and God did. So do, do this. Pray boldly for Hindus. Pray Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The idols are, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see they have ears but they don't hear noses but don't smell they have hands but don't feel feet but don't walk and they don't make a sound in their throat those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them so pray for hindus pray isaiah 41 where god says to the false gods bring your proofs bring your case let them bring them and tell us what is to happen tell us the former things that are tell us to what's to come after this behold you're nothing your work is less than nothing an abomination is he who chooses you talking about false gods so pray boldly for Hindus to see there's only one God above all gods and he alone deserves to be worshiped. Pray boldly for Hindus and pray boldly with Hindus. One of the most common refrains you'll hear from testimonies from Hindus who've come to faith in Jesus revolve around answered prayers, how Hindus were prayed for in the name of Jesus and this was opening them up to the possibility, okay, Jesus, God, how, how does it, and so opening up to the gospel. And I've never had a Hindu person reject my request to pray for them. 
So pray to the one creator God in the name of Jesus. And in this way, as you pray with Hindus, point to Jesus continually. It's interesting. Gandhi once said, I shall say to the Hindus that your lives will be incomplete unless you reverently study the teachings of Jesus. Well, there's a good starting point. So would you be willing to study the teachings of Jesus with me and then study together his unique nature? There's a sense in which Hindus have a category for incarnations or avatars of specific gods who've come to us, but there's work to be done in showing Jesus is not just another of many avatars of many, uh, many gods. Listen to this one comment. A Hindu would find it easy to accept Christ as a divine incarnation and to worship him unreservedly, exactly as he worships Krishna or another avatar, savior of his choice, but he cannot accept Christ as the only son of God, which is who he is. So you might start with the notion of an avatar, incarnation, but you can't stay there. Your goal is to get to the unique nature of Jesus as the one creator God with us. So how do you do that? Here's a question you might ask. You might ask someone who's Hindu, do you know of any stories in Hinduism about various gods that have come to life? Then obviously, listening, understanding, you're creating categories for truths of the gospel, begin to cross the bridge. Can I tell you a story in the, in the Bible about the, how the one true God came to life here in the earth and talk about Jesus, unique nature of Jesus? Study his unique nature, his exclusive claims. So a common mantra in Hinduism is that many faiths are but different paths leading to the one reality, God. Obviously, the gospel denies this. Jesus clearly teaches that he is the way to God. So how do you communicate the supremacy of Jesus in that way? Well, here's one possible question to ask. Have you ever met a guru who died and days later came back to life? And so you're creating some category here. I know somebody Bridge to cross here. I know somebody who's in some ways like your idea of a guru, and that wording's key because much like we talked about with avatars, incarnation, Jesus is not a guru in the exact same sense that, that Hindus think about gurus, but I know someone who's in some ways like your idea of a guru, but who died and three days later came back to life. Can I tell you about him? Begin to talk about the supremacy of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and to begin shifting the focus and conversation from reincarnation to resurrection, the one who has proven that he knows the way to salvation, to heaven. And this focus on Jesus' exclusive claims is key because at some point in conversation with a Hindu, we've got to get to the fact that Jesus is not just one among many gods that we might follow. Jesus is the God who alone is worthy of following. So we're not leading Hindus to add Jesus to a pantheon of gods, but to lay aside all other gods to follow Jesus. In order to get to that point, at some point, we must communicate his exclusive claims. So talk about his unique nature, his exclusive claims, his comforting promise. Dive into Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30 with a Hindu friend or neighbor or acquaintance. Just think, think about these words. In light of a perceived endless cycle of work and meditation and devotion, all in search of relief from that cycle, Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, that's good news. So maybe to ask this question, what must a Hindu do to be saved from this world of sin and suffering? That might lead, that question might lead to some of the paths described above, Dharma, Janana, Bhakti, but then to begin crossing the bridge of the gospel. Can I share with you what God has done? Not what we can do, but what God has done to free you from, you and me from sin and suffering in this world. And to begin to talk about this gift that he gives us, Ephesians 2, 8, by trusting in God and his grace, we are guaranteed his rest. So study Jesus, point to Jesus in these ways in particular. As you share the gospel with somebody who's Hindu, make sure to proclaim the bad news clearly. The bad news clearly. So you saw all these paths to moksha or salvation in Hinduism are based upon how one identifies the human problem. The key is from the beginning to make sure that a problem is clear. This is such an enlightening quote from Gandhi. He said, it is an unbroken torture to me that I'm still so far from him who, as I fully know, governs every breath of my life and whose offspring I am. 
So he felt the clear distance between him and a supreme God or God's which is what the gospel confirms. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're separated from God. Hinduism feels that, whether it acknowledges one supreme God or many gods. So then to ask, to at least ask a friend, Hindu, or Hindu friend, neighbor, acquaintance, is it possible that we've incorrectly diagnosed the problem in and around us? That maybe in a world of many gods, there's actually really only one God. And that our ultimate problem is actually not ignorance or even bad works, but the reality is we've turned aside from the one true God and worshiped all kinds of other gods instead. I put all kinds of scriptures along these lines when people were confronted with that question. Is it possible we've incorrectly diagnosed the problem in and around us, and is it possible we've completely missed the solution right in front of us? That we're prone to pray to gods who can't save when the one true God has made a way for us to be saved. And we can turn to him, be saved, Isaiah 45, 1 Thessalonians 1. So proclaim the bad news clearly, and then proclaim the good news joyfully all the good news of the gospel. We want them to be glad in the one true God forever. So think about this. Affirm their worth. Think about this in, in terms of Hindu thought. To affirm them as people uniquely created in the image of God. Not as an animal or anything else for that matter, but as an individual loved by God, created in a no God. Affirm their worth spiritually as souls who are loved by God. Affirm them physically so in Hinduism, there's a, a definite emphasis on the soul. The body is more expendable, but the gospel affirms the value of not just the soul, but the body. Jesus' resurrection, our bodily resurrection. These bodies aren't just disposed of when we die. One day they're going to be resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15. So hear these words in light of a worldview that says, once you die, your soul moves on, your body's gone totally. 1 Corinthians 15 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Read it a little bit slower to them and then say, that's really good news. <laughs> so affirm their worth, just, not just spiritually, but physically. Show them hope. There's an Indian folk song that says, how many births are past, I cannot tell. How many yet to come, no man can say. But this alone I know and know full well that pain and grief embitter all the way. Oh, there's better news than that. To any man or woman caught in a seemingly endless cycle of pain, grief, and suffering, distant, disconnected from God, here's the good news of the gospel. You can know God now. The highest of all privileges, Jeremiah 9, is available today, now. You can know the one true God. He is personal. God is personal. He speaks, Genesis 1-3. He's grieved, Genesis 6-6. He's not distant from us. He reveals himself to us, Exodus 3-15. He lovingly and faithfully provides for our needs, Exodus 16-12. He's jealous for our affections, Exodus 25. He detests evil, Leviticus 20. He reigns over all, Psalm 2. He will protect us, Psalm 59. He'll save us, quiet us with his love, rejoice over us with singing, Zephaniah 3. Look to this God, he's personal, and trust in him, he's personal, and God is pursuing you. This is why Jesus came, to seek us and to save us. It's not about us making our way to him through this path or that path, but he's made a way to us. I remember talking with actually a Hindu and a Buddhist person sitting outside a temple one day in, uh, in Asia, and uh, as we're talking there, uh, they're both talking about how all kinds of different paths that ultimately lead to 
to God or whatever you want to call him. And so I'm just listening and listening. And then finally I said, it sounds like it's almost like you guys picture God or, or whoever it might be or whatever God's at the top of a mountain and we're all at the bottom of a mountain and you may take this path up and I may take this path up, but in the end, we're all going to be in the same place. And they said, exactly, you understand. And I said, well, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to make our way up to him, but he actually came down to us and brought us to, him, to himself. They said, that would be great news. I said, it is great news. And, <laughs> and so, so this is... God is pursuing you. He doesn't want any of us to perish. He wants us to receive his salvation. So this is the gospel for the Hindu. You can know God now and you can be saved forever. Saved from sin and suffering and evil and death forever. I write these things to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I, I, as I was working on this, I was reminded of uh, a brother who came to Christ uh, from a Hindu background, this friend of mine, uh, um, named Ronnie, and I asked him uh, just to make sure I had the details right on his story. Um, he came to the U.S. back in fall 2008 uh, to get a degree in mechanical engineering uh, from a Hindu background. Local pastor invited him to church. He said, I didn't go. Six months later, he invited, invited me again. This time I went just to make him feel better. Um, so he said he started praying to Jesus and prayed continually for months. None of his prayers were answered. So he asked the pastor, Pastor, I've been praying to Jesus for months and none of my prayers are answered. I was eagerly waiting for him to say, continue to pray or fast and pray until God answers your prayer. But he said, Ronnie, don't seek God for all these things, but seek his kingdom first. He'll give you all these things in his time. He said, these words touched my heart. Coming from a Hindu background, I was never told to seek God for who he is. Rather, always told to worship God for money, good schooling, job, etc. I shared this with my Christian friend. He said, it's from Matthew 6.33. That led me to read the Bible. He started, so fast forward through studying the Bible, uh, came into, uh, to the point where he said, I understood my own sin, my need of a Savior, learned all that Jesus did on my behalf on the cross. And uh, this particular year, I committed my life to the Lord Jesus. God's process of bringing me to himself has been painful, yet I rejoiced with the psalmist, and he's experienced all kinds of opposition from his family. Uh, he, he said, I rejoice for the psalmist who said he rescued me. He rescued me because he delights in me. And uh, just to kind of finish that story out, uh, he was at Secret Church 14 two years ago and he met a girl uh, who was visiting. Uh, this was in, in Birmingham and uh, a girl from out of town. Uh, so they met at Secret Church, stayed in touch, started dating. Um, and then God used some circumstances at Secret Church 15 last year to lead them to getting engaged. And so now they're getting married a few months from now. So uh, you never know what God's gonna do in and through Secret Church for... <laughs> I hate to go back to the theme for tonight, but it's just, uh, anyway, God's got the whole thing rigged. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.